morning, friends. It's good to be amongst friends. It's good to be here this morning. I want to introduce to you a new friend, someone that I've been talking with and who's been part of the Iowa community at different times, but I'd like to introduce him to you this morning, so I'd like to read just some brief words about his biography. Chris Hewitts has spent his life bearing witness to the possibility of hope, to a world that has maybe given up hope and on God's love. Originally from Omaha, Nebraska, Chris studied at Asbury University in Kentucky, where he double majored in theology and missions with a minor in ancient biblical languages. Shortly after graduating, he moved to India, where he would have a dozen meetings with Mother Teresa, and it is there that his heart and mind were opened even further to the needs of the people around him. While living in India, he helped launch South Asia's first pediatric AIDS care home, creating a safe haven for children impacted by the global pandemic. Chris engages here and around the world in places and spaces, participating in God's boundless love. There is more to tell, and certainly more will come out in his story this morning. Let's hear from Chris, and then John Bray and I will join him on the platform for some questions to help us understand more about God's love and how to engage in the world. Chris, please come join us. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Well, good morning. Oh, yeah, that's nice that you can sort of speak back here. Um, in 1990s, and, and probably before a lot of you were born, um, in one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, a little spot in West Africa about the size of, of South Carolina, some men found some diamonds, actually some diamond mines in, in the eastern part of Sierra Leone. Because of the poverty in this country, these guys realized that the fighting over access to these, these resources would potentially lead to conflict. And so what they did to try to subvert that was they captured a government soldier and they chopped his hands off hung them around this man's neck with a letter to the president saying, we're taking these diamonds and if you try to stop us, this is how we're coming for you. If you remember, the war is often referred to as the blood diamonds conflict. It, it spun out of control and the government soldiers, the, 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 the rebels and the militias fought and, and it was terrible and it, and it really wreaked such pain and destruction throughout this, this beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Well, my first time in, in, in Freetown was during the war. 60% of the country was still controlled by the rebels. Um, we had to, to fly into this little island off of the coast of Sierra Leone because the airports had been bombed out. And so we took this helicopter over. These Liberian pastors met us, and they picked us up. And uh, this was back in the day when, like, killer music was still on the radio. So we're driving through town, and it's uh, Tupac, and it's Destiny's Child. And it's surreal, right? If you've ever been somewhere during a time of conflict, it's that, 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 that buzz, that sort of energy, it's, it's surreal. Well, our first stop was to the camp for the war wounded, right? And I wasn't prepared for, for what I was about to see. In, in the middle of the city was this, essentially it was a slum, but it was for the survivors of the folks who had suffered the atrocities of the mutilations, right? So in this country of, of 7 million people, over a quarter of a million of those folks had their hands or their arms, their, their legs or their feet um, removed, amputated with large knives or machetes. And, and unfortunately, in a lot of the worst cases by their own sons as a way of humiliating these boys to conscript them to fight in the war. 
So the folks who had sense enough to raise the bleeding stumps of their arms above their heads and run for their lives, the folks who somehow didn't die from affection or, or secondary diseases because of this were, were gathered up and, and they were given little, little spots, little slums in this camp. And I showed up and, and I couldn't believe what I, what I saw. I mean, can you imagine? But then I couldn't believe the stories that I heard. It was like everybody wanted to process their, their trauma. Everybody wanted to, 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 to be validated, to, to be seen, to be understood. And so I, I went from, from, from little slum to little slum listening to these people telling me what happened to them, how it happened to them. That, you know, the last things that they did before their son took their hands, he, he took his wedding ring off and, and put it in his front pocket. The decisions that these people, the disgusting decisions that these people were forced to make, Long sleeve or short sleeve? And I, I couldn't take it anymore, right? It was overwhelming. So I saw this, this, this lady, this, this, this 20-something woman. She was standing there. She had both arms, both legs, and she was just sort of sweating us, right, checking us out, watching us. And I was like, man, I got to go talk to her. Like, I just need some sense of to return to sanity, to normalcy for me, Right? So I go over there, and I was like, what are you, what are you doing here? And, and this woman didn't want to tell her story. She, she didn't want to talk about it. And that's sort of how we are, right? Like, it's none of your business, man. But we're so voyeuristic, aren't we? We so impose ourselves. We so lay claim to the so-called other. Well, her neighbors, also sort of like us, wanted to jump in and wanted to tell her story. So they sort of began to narrate something that was very common, very typical, right? Soldiers had come into her village, and they'd rounded up all the, the military-age men, and, and similarly executed them. And then before they, they, they continued, they began to sexually assault some of these women. And so this young woman had witnessed the death of her husband. This one young woman had, had been brutally assaulted. And as she laid there in the dirt sobbing, she looked over at her then three-month-old baby girl. And then one of the worst things I've ever heard in my life, these men who attacked her village took that little child and chopped that baby's left arm off at the bicep. So now I, 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 I just couldn't take it anymore. And I look up, look up, and there that little girl is now, three years old, sitting in the dirt in a pretty little yellow dress with a handful of peanuts, and she's trying to open one. Right? So she's biting on the shell. She's, she's pressing it against the nub of, of what's left of her arm. And in that moment of absurdity, I saw myself. In that moment of absurdity, this little child became a mirror, really, to, I think, the church. Right? I was immediately reminded of, of the, Saint, uh, the writings of St. Paul who says, you know what? As a Christian community, we really were designed to be a body. Right? And that's the metaphor. We're the body of Christ. And it's all the different bits of the body. It's all the different members of the body that actually add up to something that can perform very simple tasks like opening a peanut. But it's when we overload the body with lots of feet and legs and lots of elbows and, and wrists and, and we forget that we actually need the ankles and the knees and the shoulders and the hands that we are unable to do the very simple things that God has designed us to, to, to accomplish in the world. We're unable to practice our vocational fidelity of bearing witness to hope. We are incapable, really, of, of reflecting the, 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 the grace that, that, that God has made so accessible and available to us. And in that moment, I was overwhelmed. And in that moment, I was convicted. And that child and the suffering that she's gone through was imposed upon her. But you know what? A lot of the suffering that we experience and a lot of the suffering that, that we perpetuate, even as Christians, is, is on us. 
It's something that we've done to ourselves. And we've severed our own members. And so I, I applaud you all. Like, I, 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 I really admire your, your community for coming together this week to have these conversations that you're having about reconciliation, about inclusion, about wholeness, about what is a community and the community of God look like in 2017. Because our own divisions, right, our own fractured sense of self is really lamentable. And we look absurd, we look ridiculous to the non-religious, the non-Christian community that watches us fight with each other over simple, silly things that really aren't essential for our own sense of Christian integrity and really not for the integrity of God. God doesn't need us to defend God, but to live into the responsibility of our grace. What you're trying to talk about, what you're trying to accomplish this week is urgent work. Clearly, it's undramatic. Clearly, it's mundane. Clearly, it's difficult. Some of these conversations really press on the stress fractures of our ego's sense of, of coping, the things that, that, that we don't want to talk about, the conversations that we don't want to face. But man, you're, you're in an incredible place to suss through all this. You're in an incredible place to work through all this. During your years at university, you have the potential and the possibilities to test the limits of your values, your convictions, your, 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 your theological sort of options that will hopefully shape the trajectory of the rest of your lives. And if those things can't be tested here while you're at IWU, if you can't have these courageous conversations here, then it's going to be really hard to have them when you leave this place, right? So, so tons of respect for having this. I know it's not easy. You know, for some of us, this has is, 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 is been very difficult. I want to sort of suggest a couple things. And then, like Lena said, you know, it's super easy for this white guy to roll into uh, Marion for a quick minute, bump my gums on your stage, and bounce. Like, that's unaccountable. That doesn't help you guys. So I, I want to just put a couple sort of baby steps forward in terms of how I've tried to navigate this in my own life and then really just sort of talk it out a little bit with, with folks from your community that in a way that hopefully can make it really practical for what your culture is trying to accomplish here. But years ago, when, when I started to realize my sort of own stuckness, when I started to realize like I had also suffered the limbs of the body of Christ in my own spaces of worship, in my own communities, in my own sense of friendship, like I, I really had to face that. I really had to face that as an issue of my own sort of theological integrity because in, in one of the metaphors for paradise, it says that around the throne of God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will worship God together. And if that's what it sort of looks like, if that's what we're being drawn towards, then why doesn't it always look like that in the present, right? Because in almost every other area of our life, we usually start with the end in sight. And that's why you slug through your, your, your homework. That's why you read things that may not be super interesting, that's why you're going to probably, hopefully you don't have to stay here more than f five or six years. But like you're working towards an end and that degree will hopefully be a key to help open doors. But when we start with the end inside, it informs what the present looks like. And I think for a lot of us, the present today begins with, with learning how to lament our racialization. So you all know what this word means, racialization. Racialization sort of points to this sort of anomaly that statistically speaking, university educated religious people are statistically the least racist people. That makes sense. But actually, statistically speaking, university educated religious people live and work and worship in the most congealed and homogenized spaces. 
So racialization just sort of points out that, that imbalance, that disimbalance, that, that sort of anomaly of like, wait a second, that doesn't add up. And I think for a lot of us, we, 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 we enter a conversation this week and we don't know how to have it. So I think the first step is just lament. And lament is one of the beautiful practices that we have as, as Christians to sort of simultaneous, simultaneously grieve what is broken while we, while we hope and yearn for what can be. If we can lament our racialization, that opens us up to the possibility of confession. And so the second sort of baby step in this conversation is, is we have to confess the poverty of our friendships. Look, I know a ton of guys who, who are, are in the game, man. They're, they're, they're writing, they're speaking, they're working on, on, on racial reconciliation. But some of these white guys actually don't have black friends. Some of these black guys in the work don't have white friends. Sure, they have professional conversation partners. But friendships create a kind of accountability that opens our hearts in a way that causes us to sort of understand the possibility of the fruit of lament. And so when I talk about confessing the poverty of our friendships, usually what I do for folks is just say, look, I, I, I don't want to make any accusations, any assumptions, any judgments about who I perceive you to be. Just pull out your cell phone and look at the last 10 texts you've sent or calls you've made. And if you're a 20-something heterosexual evangelical white girl from Indiana, I bet you a lot of your texts and calls have gone to somebody who has very many similarities in those fragments of your whole. That hit list, that call list, that text list exposes to us the poverty of our friendship in a very gentle way. So that when we can move from lament into confession, then we really begin to have the courage to talk about dismantling our false centers. And I really think that's the hard work now in 2017 for some of us, is to dismantle the false centers that we've over-identified with. So false centers, what, what am I talking about? These false centers are, are, are the things that actually create and, and fortify the so-called margins. So I know tons of folks who, who have this huge heart for people on the margins, but listen to our language. Listen to the assumptions. What, what are we talking about? Look, if, if Christ centered himself among those who were poor, then it's actually folks like us that are on the margins of Christ's reality. But... In 2017, a guy like me who, who, who fortifies my own false center creates margins. And I do it through my, 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 my words. Listen to me. If you're around guys like me, sometimes you hear us say things like this. Oh, my Jewish friend Beth, my, my gay friend Danielle, my black friend Jared, my, uh, my Muslim friend Jilan. But you never hear guys like me say, oh, you know, my white, straight, Protestant friend John. Because I'm normalizing my false center by using the one word that separates me from you. And in recognizing that, I begin to dismantle it. But until I recognize it, and it's, it's simple, listen to your own words. Until I recognize, recognize it, I'm fortifying this false center. And this false center creates the so-called margins. And that's the unfortunate malformation of the world that we live in now. So... In our dismantling of our false centers, we just receive the gift of our identities and we no longer allow the fragment, the fragments of who we are to lay claim to the whole of who we can be. And that's a grace and that's a gift. And so these three baby steps, right? Lamenting our racialization, confessing the poverty of our friendships and dismantling our false centers, I think are, are three really, really practical ways to move these conversations that y'all are having here on campus forward. And what's great is that you can do that together. 
that you have each other, that you're not alone in this. And what's great about the tone and, and, and my sense of the compassion and, and, and really the intention of your community this week is to allow this to be a safe place for that to happen, for this to be clumsy, for us to stutter and stumble through it, for us to be able to make mistakes. We're, we're not always going to say it right. We're not always going to do it right. Even our best intentions will have harmful consequences. But you know what? If we realize that we're all in process and that we're all sort of on a journey, then we make room for each other. If we realize that, you know what, the things that, that are, are really hard about this conversation, the things that are really frustrating me about this week, the things that are really painful about this week are, are usually the unresolved sort of parts of our sense of self, our ego, our defense mechanisms that are getting triggered, then we receive those sensations. We pray with those urges and impulses. And we even allow those to be graces. And I bet you people here will be patient with each other. So like I said, I'd, I'd love to have some conversations around this. And I'd love to try to see, can we make this practical for your community? Because I, I, I really, I admire what you're doing. It's amazing that you had Christina on, on Monday here. She's a, a great friend and she's up to good work. And, and I think your, your, your folks here who are cared for pastoring and, and, and mentoring, guiding and, and, and loving you, um, are also doing important work. And so if we could support them and, and encourage us, I'd love it. So. Hey, Chris. Hey, how are you? <laughs> good. We're just going to talk. Microphone uh -oh. would be good, Lena. Oh, microphone would be good, yeah. I usually don't have conversations with people with a microphone. But. Yeah, well, normally a conversation <laughs> with three doesn't include oh, another yeah. 2,000. Hey, oh, hi. Um, Chris, amazing thoughts and reflections. One of the things that I... Um, remember you sharing when we were talking about these three kinds of acts or movements, if you will, of lament, confess, and the false centers, is you kept bringing up this word gratitude. And mm. I, I was really intrigued by that because you were, you were taking it out of the essence of feeling your own critical spirit upon yourself. And you were raising it to this word gratitude. Please share more about that because yeah. that really began to change and reposture my own sense when I examine my own heart. Yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> I am. Um, you know that the four marks that, that historically make and break Christian community, the four marks that folks would recognize Christian communities as is, is promise, keeping, truth, telling, hospitality, and gratitude. And, and you know in your, your most intimate friendships and relationships that gratitude is really the glue that, that holds those together. My sense is that a lot of us have this this, this, we've mistaken God's voice for these, 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 un, these uncomfortable, these painful feelings or sensations or, or, or inner experiences. So a lot of folks, you have these, these voices of resentment or shame. You have these, these, these voices of fear or regret. You have these, these voices of, of doubt or, or, or guilt rolling around in the back of your head, especially when you, 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 you become quiet and, and you enter your prayer practices. And some of us mistake those as the voice for God, but that's not what God sounds like right? You have to remember that God loves us more than we want to be loved, that God isn't as hard on you as you are on yourself, right? And from that place, right, gratitude begins to, to, to emerge. And so when I enter this conversation, I, I, really, I really hope that it comes from a place of deep gratitude, that the, the gratitude that, that, that my, God's been patient with me, the gratitude of people who've made room for me, the gratitude of, of folks who've let me make mistakes in my own journey, and um, hopefully from gratitude, uh, oh, there's a, a lot of fruit that blossoms, right? Chris, we're all shaped by something. I grew up, I, I grew up uh, in the inner city of Chicago. 
but in a very conservative religious home. Uh, and my process of getting to where I am today required breaking and remaking and breaking and remaking. And so I'm guessing we have a bunch of students here with a, in different places in trying to figure out where they are and what they are. And some have, conversa- have conversations like this, they get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Some have conversations like this and they applaud and they cheer. Uh, what about, what advice can you give us of the process when we hear something that disquiets us because of our spiritual background, our family background, our political background, our racial background, whatever it is, what advice would you give us? Yeah, I, um, I, I know that these, these conversations elicit s- uh, such a, a spectrum of responses, and, um, and my sense is that this conversation is, is one of many that, 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 that you all have and, 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 and should continue to have. Sometimes when I, I look at folks that want to turn any one conversation or issue into a cause and, and keep that cause unaccountable from relationships, I, I find that the conversations usually stall or, the, or they become really, really polarizing. So my sense is, is if you can continue to have this conversation in a context where friendships are part of the, the, the rooting of keeping them accountable, then, then we really become much more compassionate for ourselves and we become much more compassionate in the, in the discussion. But when something is a cause, when something is an issue, even when we reduce, like I, I do a, a lot of anti-trafficking work and um, I, I get asked to speak all the time um, uh, on campuses, at congregations, at conferences on, on human trafficking. I, I won't do this anymore unless I'm with friends who are survivors of trafficking. And that becomes accountable, right? That becomes sort of, it becomes such a more appropriate way to, to handle something that's been reduced to a cause or an issue. And my friends who are survivors aren't the embodied face of the cause that you think you care about. And, 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 and students here can't be turned into that either. So I think friendships keep these, these conversations safe and accountable. I mean, it's, it's simple. I, and you all seem to basically like each other. Um, Those two don't. I mean, I know some of you probably don't like each other. You get this many people together, and there's got to be tons of chemistry and some, uh, I didn't pick you or you. (laughs) We've been focusing on boundless love this Mm -hmm. week as well, and something that I've been exploring for myself is this idea of how I've created my own boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, Daughter of Indian immigrants, um, third culture kid, Mm -hmm. married to a non-Indian, 34 years, having multi ethnic children, um, thinking about myself as an academic, Mm -hmm. thinking of myself as a community member, Um, am I an Indian woman, an American woman, you know, all these boundaries I think that we put with identities and labels and trying to work through boundless love because God's boundless love doesn't operate on identities and labels. And uh, I wonder if you could do two things right now. I'm very intrigued by this idea of the, the false centers. And you said that, you know, how, how you've kind of experienced people moving the margins for you. Yeah. And I'm intrigued by that, um, you know, as a white male and what that means to you. But then I also would love it if you could take time to share that story about the priest in World yeah. War II. Because I think that both of those together yeah. speak to the things that I've also been trying to undo yeah. You know, some of the false narratives that I've put on myself that I've then allowed people to also put on me. Yeah. So this is, this is the, the, one of the challenges. I mean, this is one of the hardest parts of this whole conversation for all of us because, like, like I said, like, we allow the fragments of ourselves to lay claim to the whole. So there's, there's, there's parts of who you are. It's, 
It's your upbringing, it's your socialization, it's your religious tradition, it's your, your sexual orientation, it's your, your gender, it's your race. And, and, and for some of us, we have an affinity to lean towards one of those fragments more than others, and then we lead with that. And we allow that bit to over-identify who we perceive ourselves to be, but you know that that's not who you are, that you're more than that. So this invitation to love our neighbor as ourselves, well, it starts here by learning to love myself. Man, some of us don't love ourselves very well. Some of you have over-identified your sense of self with your, 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 your belief in the doctrine of original sin, and you can't see that there's any goodness in you. But actually, when God created humanity, God looked and said, this is very good. And I want to say that before you had an experience of original sin, you were originally righteous. That in your original innocence, as a, a little baby girl or a little baby boy, you are perfect. And our thirst for being, our hope to return to that, allows us to actually learn to reconnect with that uh, ability to love ourselves so that we can love each other. So then this, this conversation of lang language, labels, it's like, oh my goodness. Look, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. Holler. Uh, I was the oldest of six. My folks didn't get to go to university. Uh, my parents are amazing people, and they wanted to study, but they got married when they were teenagers. Six months later, my mom was pregnant with me, and they were good Catholic folks, so bam, here it goes. We're going to have a ton of these guys. And they just started knocking it out. And uh, so it's super fun for us as kids, but man, my poor folks, it, it became very, very difficult for them. And uh, by the time um, I was in grade 11, um, my mom and dad were working really hard. My dad was humiliated because he didn't have a university degree. When there was a promotion open at his place of employment, he never got it, right? It was the 24-year-old with a graduate degree who did, even though my dad had been there for 10, 15, 20 years. So because of, I think, their humiliation, my, my folks put me and my siblings in schools that they couldn't afford. They thought education would be the key so that we wouldn't be humiliated. We wouldn't have to suffer in the same way that they did. So by the time I was in grade 11, between my mom and dad, they were working seven jobs. My dad put in 40 hard hours a week at the office. He came home for a quick dinner, and then he was a janitor at a telemarketing company. Then he went directly from there to the 7-Eleven. And if I wanted to see my dad when I was in, in high school, I had to go get a Slurpee and a piece of pizza at 2 in the morning. Mm. Right? So suddenly, these, this notion of language and labels, suddenly you're talking about the working poor. That's not a category. That's my parents. Mm -hmm. Let's be careful with these, 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 this, these words. Two of my siblings were adopted, and they were hurt very badly as kids, very badly. And so my brother, he acted out of that pain, tried to burn down a couple of children's homes, or uh, what do you call it, for, uh, like where you send boys who get kicked out of school. Anyway, as kids, we thought that was hilarious. Chad's out of control. No. Chad was acting out of pain. And so my brother, the so-called street kid, that language, that label became offensive. I imagine my little sister, when she left home, was probably prostituting to pay for, for, for rent. And so the so-called child prostitute was in my family. Suddenly, language and labels becomes offensive in proximity to relationship. And we use offensive language all the time. We talk about beggars and lepers and, and all these words that actually over-identify somebody with the way that they're exploited or the way that they suffer. And these are socially backloaded terms that now mean something more than somebody's medical condition. So again, in friendships, it's like in relationships, uh, even the language that we use is exposes how we're, we're creating part of the problem. So the story, sorry, the story that I, I think sort of has helped me the most in, 
and really the gratitude that I, I think I speak from is, is over the, the past 25 years, there's been so many people that have made room for me, that have allowed me to be clumsy and make mistakes in this. And, and maybe you've heard this story. Um, I, I don't know if it's true, but I heard a, a Kenyan woman, this, this preacher, just bring it like the rain. And uh, she was talking about these soldiers during World War II who were during a battle separated from the, the, the rest of the troops. And one of these men was, was, was severely injured. And so they're trying to find a safe place to sleep, and, and, and this man who was injured ends up dying because of the, the, the wounds. And so they see this church. They see this little Catholic church in, 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 the, in the south of France, in the countryside, and, and, and the surviving men knock on the door, and the priest answers. And they go, Father, our brother has been, um, has been killed in combat. W- would you do us the great honor of, of, of burying him? The priest looks at these guys, and he's like, well, you know the rules. Was he Catholic? And these guys like, ah, I don't know. And he's like, hmm, well, we can't bury him here then. So the priest stops and scratches his head, and he says, you know, we actually own the land. The church actually owns the land on the other side of that fence there on the side of the church grounds. We can go over there, and we can bury him outside the fence, right? So these guys, they, they, they leave the church grounds. They get some shovels. They dig a grave. The, the priest performs a funeral, and these guys try to find a place to sleep that night so that the next morning they can try to reconnect with the rest of the, rest of the soldiers. But before they go, they want to say goodbye to their friend. So they come back to the church, they look for the grave, and, and they can't find it. And these guys are losing their minds. They're just like, wait a second, we totally did this, and we were here yesterday. And as they give up and start to walk away, the priest comes running out of the church door, and he's just like, stop, 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 stop. And these guys are like, Father, where's, where's our friend? And the priest says, when you left, I was so sick that I couldn't sleep. And so in the middle of the night, I got up and moved the fence. And I think that's where the gratitude comes from. Mm. Y'all, everyone of us in this room has had someone move the fence to make room for us. Every one of us in this room has had someone move the fence so that we too can belong. And I think if we can't recognize that and if we can't actually live into the responsibility of that, then, 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 then we're stuck. And uh, I, I think that's where, where, where we begin in some of these conversations, right? Chris, I really want to thank you for coming to Indiana Wesleyan this week. I, we could sit here and have a conversation for another couple hours, and, and st- I'd still be intrigued. Part of the challenge for everybody, you talk about false centers, is we have our own sense of who we are, and yeah. we're growing out of, hopefully growing out of that into something new. Happened in the early church, uh, happened as Jesus came, broke society up and down. He started ministering to the poor. Yeah happened is the church started ministering to Gentiles. There's no slave or free. There's no man or woman. There's no Greek or Jew because we're all one in Christ. And I just want to challenge you guys to keep having this conversation with your Lord and with one another as you talk about, God, how can I reflect your love for us that's passionate for the world? I'd like to pray for you and then we'll head out. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Mm. Father, we thank you for your love for us. That while we were sinners, Jesus came and dwelt flesh, became one of us, walked among us, gave his life for us because of love. The early church struggled with figuring out what it meant to love their neighbor somewhat. We still struggle with it. 
And I would pray that in these days at Indiana Wesleyan, you would tune our ears to hear what you have to say. Not in accusation, but in gentle nudges of your spirit to say, we can be better than we are. We can better reflect the kingdom of God. May every single one of us be open to that nudge of your spirit and be responsive to the grace we've gotten and aware of the grace we can offer. In Jesus' name, amen.